Hi, I'm Bob Becker, and I am an old crazy ultra runner, for sure, with the emphasis on crazy. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Old Crazy Runners. I'm Nicholas, the oldest of the old crazy runners, and I got my cousin Fundy, who may be the youngest, but right now, technically, medically, we have to say is actually now the oldest of the oldest crazy runners. I am definitely feeling the oldest, and we will get into that. I have a nice old man injury to talk about later, but today you're going to want to stick around because we have a penultimate old crazy runners on the podcast, Bob Becker, who at the age of 70 ran the double bad water through Death Valley. Ran the whole thing, decided to turn around and run back. And actually a little more than that. It is, it's pretty amazing. Before we get to Bob though, take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Maybe drop a line about what you think of Fundy's use of the word penultimate. I thought it was pretty good. I thought good. it was fantastic. Did you that practice good. that beforehand? No, I'm just expanding my just vocabulary. On the spot. You got a word of the on day. The is, that, is it the calendar right there in front of you? It is not, but I should get one of those. The time has come and passed. We had the greatest, the most amazing, the mother of all relays this last weekend, the Hood Coast. I was so excited. We had an awesome van. We had an awesome race. Everybody was out there cheering everybody on. And... uh party down at the beach and I do have to say this looks like maybe one of the last big parties before uh, the big delta shuts us down yeah I'm, I'm glad that it, it it might be the last not that it's shutting things down but that we uh, squeaked it in there uh, that is the news right now The one of the relays that we had originally had on our calendar that we pulled away from on our own a couple weeks ago just got cancelled as well the Rogue River relay set up uh, set for Three weeks from now, down in Southern Oregon, that's a hot spot. No one wants to be down there. You don't want to be amongst a bunch of crowds and porta potties. And even if it is a fantastic relay, it's time to look at that maybe again for next year. Yeah, but man, uh, we had a great hood to coast. Weather was great. A little chilly up top. Um, everybody ran awesome. I had the hardest leg. Uh, some people say leg five. And, uh, Felt like I did pretty good and end up learning that I ran the entire hood to coast with a hernia. That's like your own uh, personal fanny pack. You got a little, got a little pocket there for yourself. <laughs> a little pocket there of intestines for you. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, you know, way to man up. Get out there. Finish anyway. And that last leg certainly probably wasn't the best thing you could be doing when you're uh, just discovering that you've got a hernia. Probably not. Well, luckily, I didn't know I had a hernia until I, I finished Hood to Coast. And one of our bandmates, Stephanie, is a registered nurse. And so the next day when it really hurt to stand up and walk around, she's like, where does it hurt? And I told her. She's like, oh, you probably got a hernia. Yeah. Yeah, she was pretty confident. Uh, hedged her um, diagnosis just a little bit, as she probably should, but uh, ended up being spot on. Because, you know, she's a nurse. That's what they do. Also, pretty damn awesome having a nurse in an old crazy runner van. That is uh, doubling well, down be, on being smart. Should be required. 
It really all should vans, be. All vans with, with people over 50 should have a nurse inside it. And the new van was fantastic. We had all the room that we wanted, and we splurged out the last second and got a microwave. <laughs> so I got to ask you, is that now going to become a uh, permanent part of the van build, or do we need to take that back? Probably need to take that back. I don't think I'm going to leave it in there. I don't know. We could talk. I don't know. I'll ask the boss, a.k.a. the wife, a.k.a. the yeah. boss. It came in pretty handy. It was pretty handy. Um, another thing with leg five is that on the drive home, well, first of all, we are the luckiest old crazy runners in the entire world because uh, Sunday morning after Hood to Coast, uh, just through happenstance, we got to hang out with Gene fucking Dykes, oh, man. Jeannie Rice, who holds the world record uh, for 70 plus uh, female marathon time at like a 737 pace, I think was her pace. Yeah. Seven thirty-seven yeah. marathons. It's, it's, it's seventy it's plus. Sit down, son. It's that. That's that pace right there. Yeah. And uh, Amby Burfoot, nineteen sixty-eight Boston Marathon winner, uh, the uh, editor in chief at Runners World Magazine forever, and the guy who invented the fucking pace chart. Exactly. If you're doing any sort of <laughs> marathon training at all, well, any you're training, familiar any, with Amby Burf- Burford. Yeah. Uh, anything that 10,000 meter, any, any long distance, uh, when you're looking up your pace charts for your tempo pace and your, you know, threshold paces and you all the, he made the chart. He did it. Yeah. Yeah, he did. And that was before spreadsheets. That was before spreadsheets. So <laughs> wrote, wrote it uh, out. We got himself. really lucky, but yeah, where I'm that going was with a that, fantastic morning. Uh, as, um, you and Stephanie were in the back seats of the van, I was up front with Gene Dykes driving him home. Okay. Hold uh, on a second. You Portland. skipped an important part. Yeah. You skipped, You just went right to the fact that we're driving home with Gene Dykes. You forgot to explain why we got the chance to drive home to Portland with Gene Dykes. We got to spend well, an entire drive to, with this man. To, according to Ben, one of our bandmates, uh, we kidnapped him because who wouldn't want to kidnap Gene Dykes and talk with him? Um, ben, but basically, ben here's, here's what you don't know. Yeah. I play a mean fucking fiddle, dude. And in the <laughs> middle of the night, I want to bet. <laughs> <laughs> so we're we're you know getting ready to say our goodbyes and gene's like yeah i'm gonna catch a bus to astoria and then i can there's like five buses and a train and i can get to the airport and i'm like gene you are not taking public transport back to the portland airport i will give you a ride no 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 i got it i'm like no i would have taken him like six hours of yeah, transport to drive an hour and 10 minutes yeah. so uh he ended up going back with us, and Gene ran the same legs that uh, I did. He ran leg five. And I discovered uh, that he ran one we more ran... than you did as well. He, he did. He did. He, he ran an extra leg because somebody got yeah. injured on his team. Um, but on that last, the last leg, leg five, is kind of infamous. It's kind of a mofo. You run up and then you run down. Well, I discovered that Gene and I basically had the same pace, about a 920 up at the top. And then uh, I ran like an 840 downhill. I, I couldn't go fast. I didn't know why. Probably because I had a hernia. <laughs> but he turns to me and he's like, wow, you are slow downhill. <laughs> he ran like a 715 downhill. Yeah, he pretty much uh, showed you why he is GFD the alien. Uh, but now, so cool. It, it was cool. And... It, it even went beyond that because his flight ended up getting delayed and I had the chance to spend the evening with Gene. And not only is he a 
magnificent runner. He is an amazing bowler. He's got well, four 300s under his belt. He never told us about that. An 800 <laughs> series. He'll talk your ear off when it comes to bowling. Next time he's, we see him, we oh, yeah. have to plan. Go. In fact, you're going to love this. I'm like, Gene, if I'd known that, I would have gone bowling with you. And he goes, I wouldn't have rolled a house ball. <laughs> <laughs> of course not. No, not at all. No. We would have had one Here's- drilled for Gene on the spot, though. Yeah, we would have had to have that, that custom ordered. Uh, big movie buff. And I got to say, anybody that can recognize the comedic brilliance of the criminally underrated masterpiece that is Galaxy Quest is oh. going to rise to the top with my list. And that is Gene Dykes right there. Yeah. Well, and also you mentioned he's a scratch golfer. Oh, yeah. Let me throw that out there. Scratch, scratch <laughs> golfer. Scratch so golfer, for four, awesome. four 300s. Uh, and. Just a really, really cool dude. It was an awesome time and so fortunate to have um, had him cross our path the way that he did and the opportunity to obviously make his trip a lot more enjoyable or manageable at least and then to get more information that I can put into action than I would have ever, ever thought I would have had in one day. Well, I think the only information we can get from Gene is just be faster because he flies and he's got no reason behind it. He just runs. It's yeah. He's an alien. <laughs> so, uh, had an awesome hood to coast. I hope all of your races are going well. Um, we obviously had dig your grave canceled. I got a hernia, so I can't run my Portland marathon. So it's kind of been a want want for this year. Um, but super happy that got to, uh, basically end the summer on hood to coast. And we squeaked it in before all hell breaks loose again with COVID. And we set a team PR by an hour, over an hour from our, our best time. We came in at 28.33, which was smoking really good for us. Uh, we did great across the exchanges. We were up there early. It was 35 degrees and 15 mile an hour winds and rainy when uh, Ben took out of the gate. Ran like a champion downhill once he got that furnace going. And we just carried that all the way through to the end. It was really a lot of fun. Like you say, it was great weather. And we had the opportunity to cheer on a lot of teams down the promenade uh, with the cowbell. So thank you, Rob Bobby, for your hospitality. And everyone everyone out there that volunteered and made it happen. It was a great effort and it really paid off and we all felt it. So thank you. And... Final say, uh, we even though Gene Dykes' team was a team of uh, all 70-plus-year-olds, we did beat them. So there's that. <laughs> and, but we would not have beat them if for, no, not for the 30-year-olds in, our, in van two of our team. You know, I went back and looked at our numbers. We actually, we held our own quite well. Van did one we? with all right. the 50-plus. Uh, it was, well, first of all, Ben came in like sub-810. Nice. Uh, you know, anytime. Oh, I don't know if I can. I, I don't know. You know, I, I don't. Yeah. Anytime, Ben. Here, I know you're listening. I know you're listening, Ben. You ever give me a pace again? I'm taking thirty seconds off, minimum. 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 Just, just you better work that into your calculation because that's that's what's happened. Three for. I'm taking thirty seconds off. That's right. And uh, if you're wearing a t-shirt with Gene Dyke's face on, I'm taking forty-five seconds off because you're be excited, <laughs> exactly. ready to run. <laughs> 
uh, obviously the other big event, almost almost as big as Hood to Coast, uh, the Olympics this year. Um, we spoke about Molly Seidel, uh, who won the bronze medal, her second time running a marathon ever. Um, uh, is that only a, her second marathon? I thought it was her third. Maybe it was her third. Yeah, I think. Maybe, I mean, not to split hairs. It was her third. Yeah. <laughs> It was under five. She's exactly. Yeah, you're correct. She ran the New York, uh, the trials, and then uh, the bronze medal winning run. Right. So she's she tweets. She's on a a flight home, and uh, you know, flying home, and there's this guy next to her, and uh, she mentioned that she runs long distances. So he's he starts telling her how to train. To, to run long distances and going over all of this plan and then pulls open his phone and says, yeah, you got to You got to follow this plan here. It was her training plan. <laughs> he was mansplaining to her, her own plan. I think the biggest error any mansplainer makes ever is just the failure to know your audience. I mean, you gotta take, know your audience. Got to know you. You know, Ted Lasso said it best, right? Be curious, not judgmental. Ask That's first. True. You know, hey, what do you do? Yeah. You look like you might have just won a bronze medal in a yeah. in a distance race, but you look who really I don't know ahead of time. Maybe maybe that's not the case. Yeah, maybe I should show you this. Yeah, maybe I should just um, sit here and mind my own business because what the hell do I know? I would like to uh, state that. Um, the quote unquote mansplaining doesn't just happen to women and it's mostly, if not almost all guys, same thing will happen to me where like, you know, I'm, uh, you know, post a picture of building a van and some guys like, Oh, well you have to do it like this and this and this. And obviously he's never done it before and doesn't know what he's talking about. And maybe watched a YouTube video once. I don't know what it is about guys. Same, you know, or you're at home Depot looking at some plumbing stuff. And then the guy just walks up and starts telling you how to do something. So uh, the mansplaining doesn't just happen to women. Uh, it's, it happens all the time. I think the annoying level is really what we're talking about here, but you're absolutely correct. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's a, uh, it's a plague. It's a plague upon manhood. <laughs> it's a plague. It really is. Uh, sometimes I want to go to a Home Depot and just kind of have a look in my face that says I'm not exactly sure. That's it. I'm just not exactly sure. And uh, see how many times I can get approached with somebody that just couldn't randomly decide what I'm looking at and what that means. That might be a uh, fun day. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you should record that. That'd be a good YouTube channel. <laughs> <laughs> TikTok that shit. That's right. So you know who is not going to mansplain anything to anybody that's a super humble dude is uh, Bob Becker. Well, first of all, if he explains anything to you, it's because it's from a point of absolute fucking knowledge and listen because this man is an amazing runner. Yeah, so he uh, started running, uh, and he was running marathons, and then for his uh, 60th birthday, his friend says, uh, hey, let's go do the Marathon de Sable for your birthday when you're 60. Something he's never done before, and uh, we've talked to people that have done it before, and mentioned that this is something where you might die. And, you, you know, die. maybe it's something you don't try for the first time at 60, but he does. Goes he out there and kicks it. ass. Exactly. Yep. So some of the other things that he's done, uh, he did the double bad water, which is more than just running bad water, turning around and running back. Is you run bad water and then you go up to the trail to the, the peak of, uh, is it Mount Whitney? Is that right? Yes. 
uh, peak of Mount Whitney, or almost the peak, it's the top of the trail, and then turn around and run back uh, for a total of 292 miles. 292 miles, and he's going to talk, I know, I know. It's like, hey, hey, Nicholas, you want to go run to Boise with me tomorrow? Uh, oh, that's not even close to what this is. Yeah, we got to go farther? Salt Lake, maybe? Oh, uh, oh no, dist- distance-wise, that's actually a little farther, I think. Okay. But it doesn't have the, first of all, we're not going to start off in Death Valley, below sea level, yeah. climb up Mount Whitney. I mean, there's just well, I got a hernia, deviation. I can't do the elevation. I was just hoping a flat straight across Oregon. Well, you were also talking about getting in a car <laughs> with a fridge full of beer. That's the only way we're going to get that distance underneath that. us. Uh, and uh, last but not least, he won the race for the ages at 74, running uh, 74 hours, completing 230 miles, setting the course record for uh, miles along the way. It is amazing. It's a fantastic story. He's a really, really cool dude. You're going to love everything he has to talk about. Let's get to it. Bob Becker, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Glad to be here. So before coming on, you expressed your disdain of being called on this podcast uh, because you thought it was for old crazy runners and you didn't think you qualified. (laughs) Yeah, well, you keep telling yourself you're younger than you are and then you don't have to quit, right? Exactly. Oh, I thought you were challenging the crazy part. (laughs) Oh, no. Well, especially where ultra runners are concerned, a little insanity is a prerequisite. So we all understand that. Exactly. So uh, Bob came across my radar uh, because there must have been some misprint somewhere, but there was a misprint that said that a 73-year-old just finished the Badwater 135. Um, And I thought, huh, he sounds like a podcast guest to me. Yes, he does. So how long ago was Badwater? Was it just two weeks ago? Well, actually, I ran Badwater uh, about, well, it was last week. It actually started on the 19th of July, which is a Monday night. Um, Actually, I'm 76. This is the fourth time I've run Badwater. Um, The first time I didn't complete Badwater, unfortunately. Um, I had ran into a problem that ultimately seemed to be the result of um, uh, inadequate balance uh, of electrolyte and, and hydration mm-hmm. um, and develop severe calf cramping, like scream out loud calf cramping at about mile 44. So that I, I didn't get very far. And um, it was just one of those things that was hard to anticipate. Uh, at the start of the race, we had uh, very unexpected, very strong headwinds um, for maybe the first 12, 15 miles that were not only very dehydrating, but uh, they were full of sand dust. So literally every couple of miles, you would meet your support crew who you uh, leapfrog every couple of miles and got a wet towel and wipe the sand out of your eyes. It was crazy. So that was, it was dehydrating, but also it um, you know, burned a lot of energy that otherwise probably wouldn't have been used. At the end of the day, that's not really an excuse. Balancing hydration, nutrition, and electrolyte replacement is part of the game. I mean, that's on me. Um, but no, the winds didn't help. So yeah, uh, I've completed the race three times before the latest when I was 70. Um, came back this time, if I had finished, I would have been the oldest finisher in the history of the race. So that was the motivation. And I really don't think it, 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 that age had anything to do with my inability to finish. It was just the circumstances of, again, poor balance in, uh, in ingestion. So the, so the three times that you finished, can you kind of take us through for people that aren't familiar with the Badwater, 
uh, kind of take us through what that run is. What's the, the total distance of 135 miles? What's the elevation? What are the unique challenges to that race? Um, Badwater 135 takes place every year in July in Death Valley. So the challenge uh, is the heat. The primary challenge is the extreme heat out there in Death Valley at the hottest time of year. It is a 135-mile race. The race takes its name, Badwater, from Badwater Basin, where the race starts, which is the lowest point in the Western Hemisphere. It's 282 feet below sea level. And you climb uh, inevitably, and it's rolling, but you climb inevitably uh, the first 18 miles to sea level at Furnace Creek, which is the first check-in point. And then at mile 42, again, you're, you're, you're kind of rolling, you're at sea level at mile 42, and then you start climbing. And the first climb is uh, roughly 15 miles to the top of Town Pass, which is 5,000 feet. You go down the other side into Panamint Valley at about 2,000 and climb back up the far side again to about 5,000 feet. Eventually, at mile 122, you arrive in the town of Lone Pine at the base of Mount Whitney which is the highest peak in the lower 48 states. And this is a road race. You're running on the road the whole time. The road on Mount Whitney ends um, 13 miles up at about um, uh, 8,500 feet where the road ends and where the trail begins if you want to hike to the, to the top of the mountain. So basically, you're climbing over, you're climbing over two mountains and up a third to the finish line at 8,500 feet from below sea level. So the first challenge is the heat. The second challenge is the climbing that you have to do. Um, and it's a race in the last few years that starts at night. So unless you're an elite runner, you're going to run through the first night, all through the, the next day, all through a second night until you finish, uh, presumably, the next morning or afternoon. You have 48 hours to complete the race. The clock keeps ticking. Uh, but it's not a race where you go to a hotel room, take a shower and take a nap for four hours and you, <laughs> yeah. you keep rocking and rolling. So yeah. it is a straight through race. And, you know, most people have to close their eyes for 20 minutes or so. That's what your crew is there for to help you, you know, hop into a van and get a few minutes of sleep. So that's it. It's an extremely challenging race. I ran it for the first time in, uh, in, uh, 08 when I was 63, I came back when I was 69 and again, when I was 70. Um, when I was 70, I actually decided well, I needed a little bigger challenge. So I did what's called the Badwater Double. And the double is where you run the race, then you summit Mount Whitney, and then you turn around and go all the way back to Badwater Basin. That's uh, 292 miles. So 30 people roughly have done that. I'm, I'm the oldest one to have ever done it. So, uh, that's <laughs> so why the hell would you do that, Bob? <laughs> I, I, hey, we mentioned this mental thing before, didn't we? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like it's like any ultra or any challenge. Uh, doing an Ironman, it's there. Can you are you can you test yourself? Can you uh, do you have the ability to meet the challenge? And um, I did something that's been done, you know, thirty times before. It's just uh, nobody quite my age. So it was a challenge I set myself out to do. I, I thought it was realistic, and uh, fortunately, the stars aligned, and I was able to complete it. Uh, I'm I'm curious the the difference in age between you and the uh, next oldest to have co to completed the double? Uh, my recollection was uh, at the time was somebody about 58 or 59 years old. Now, it's been six years, so there may have been somebody older since then. That's, uh, 
uh, you know, that's a big jump going from late 50s to 70 years old. So, uh, you know, certainly, and not just the big jump in going from 135 to 280. I mean, all those are really, really impressive. So how long did it take you to do 200 and, with 270 yeah. miles? 292, actually. But it's, 292. Uh, well, it's not, it, the race itself is obviously a race. You've got 48 hours to complete it. The rest of it is not a race. Yeah. So um, um, after we finished the race, we went back. Uh, my crew brought me back down to Piedmont to Lone Pine and got a few hours sleep. And the next morning, uh, we get up and started it. If I remember, it was roughly 3, 3.30 in the morning, which is fairly typical. So you got a little darkness, but then you're climbing during the daylight. And in our case, we were pretty slow. So we got back down late at night. And it was late enough that... Uh, Rather than starting to head back the next day, we waited a day. I slept for uh, and ate and rested for a good bit of the following day. And then we started back. So all in, it took uh, about seven days to complete. Six, six, seven days, right in that range. That is, uh, that is absolutely amazing. Something to get me out of trouble for a whole week, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and to kind of expand on this, uh, Give us a brief overview of uh, the other, you know, races that you've done, ultra marathons you've done. You mentioned triathlons. I don't know if you've done triathlons. Kind of give us the the depth and breadth of your running experience uh, over the last, uh, you know, couple decades. Well, um, I have not done triathlons. In fact, just totally admire people that do. You know, I swim like a rock. And, uh, <laughs> Me too. Thing, you know. I bicycle like a rock also. Yeah, well, I, you know, the problem here in Fort Lauderdale is, is um, you know, you take your life in your own hands when you ride on these streets down here. It's just the place wasn't, it, it, what biking wasn't part of the planning. So yeah. it's just not what I do, you know. So I'm just really strictly a runner. Um, I ran the mile back in high school, and then as an adult, I played sports. I really didn't run other than to stay in shape. You know, you go to the gym, you go out and run a few miles. But um, it wasn't until I moved to Florida from uh, – Minnesota from Minneapolis in 2002, I got, I received a call from some friends up there that said they were running a marathon, grandma's up in Duluth, Minnesota. And why didn't I come up and join them? So uh, I said, great, great excuse to see my buddies. And so um, I went out and I literally bought a pair of running shoes and at the running store asked, you know, what do I do now? And they put me in touch with a marathon training group. So I trained and in June we ran the race and, um, and I ran well, I qualified for Boston. So Rather than a one and done, I said, well, I've got to, got to do that. So, so I started training for the following year uh, with a faster group. And um, I ran Boston and then just continued to run a couple times a week. And on Saturday with this, with this group. And in 04, one of them said to me, you ever hear of the Marathon de Sable? It's, a, it's an ultra marathon. And I said, what's an ultra marathon? And, and uh, went home, checked it out. And, uh, marathon de Sable is a is a stage race of about 160 miles in the Sahara Desert in Morocco that takes place in April. So the following year in April, I was turning 60, and this fellow that had mentioned to me what, you know, asked me if I knew what it was all about, was turning 40. So that became our birthday present. We went over and ran the marathon to side, and I totally fell in love with the sport. I just absolutely loved the camaraderie of it and the support people tend to give to each other, even though they're competing. And um, so I uh, started focusing on longer distance stuff, ultra marathons. I ran my first 100 miler in 2007. And um, I've been running races, you know, ever since then. 
the thing about it that the older I've gotten, the more attention I've paid to what's uh, to what's realistic for me, right? So you know, when I started doing this stuff, you know, 12, 15 years ago, I could go run a race out west in the mountains, even though I couldn't really train very well, because I was more resilient and um, uh, I was pretty fast actually going down hills. But at the last few years, I find myself being kind of a little bit afraid of fast downhill running because all it takes is one misstep and it's all over. So today I avoid running very technical high mountain races because that's just not the best thing for me. So I'll still run a trail race, but not that type of race. And also I can't train at high altitude. So the bottom line is you have to pick your, your mm -hmm. events more carefully, at which I do. And so I do things that may sound a little crazy, but I, I've thought about realistically about whether it's something I'm able to do and train for and finish. And um, you don't always finish, but certainly that, you know, I wouldn't do it if I thought out front that it was a suicide mission. I mean, that just ain't happening, if that makes sense. Yeah. So we've had a couple other guests uh, that have done the Marathon de Sable, and I want to just have you kind of re-describe the race because uh, ironically you mentioned suicide mission <laughs> is that it's it's one of the only races that actually requires you to purchase repatriation insurance in case you die on the course. So let's kind of talk about what that the logistics of what that is and and why it is actually kind of dangerous to do it. Well, when I did it in uh, um 2005, uh, I don't think we were required to have repatriation insurance. And to the best of my knowledge, only one person has ever died out there. But, and this is a race that has, you know, 800 or 1,000 or 1,200 people running it every year. So it's a, it's a major race. So a stage race, which Marathon Sable is, is a race where you run a certain number of miles each day. So each day is a stage. And over a period of seven days, um, you're typically running 150 to 160 miles. Every year, the route changes a little bit. So you start in the morning, you're carrying all your own food and gear, sleeping bag, everything you need for that week, you're, you have on your back. In my case, I was carrying, I don't know, to start 25 to 28 pounds like in that range. Of course, you, you eat through some of the weight because you're carrying all your own food. The race provides water uh, at various points along the route because you couldn't carry all that. And they provide these tents that typically sleep 10 people at night. So you finish the day's stage, you uh, prepare your own food, you, uh, you drink water, you, get, you sleep in very close quarters with 10 people who become your best friends. The next morning you get up and you do the next stage from point B to point C. In the meantime, the race takes this tent city down. Remember, you're housing a thousand people. They put it in trucks, they drive around to point C where you're going to end the day and they set the tent city up again. So it's all ready for you when you get there. It's, a, it's an amazing logistical engineering feat actually. And you finish this thing over a course of seven days running through the sand and the hills and the mountains out there in the Sahara. It's just an incredible experience. Uh, difficult, but one that is, um, it, it's just, uh, again, the, the, that notion of people supporting each other and the camaraderie aspect is, truly extraordinary and is what I love about the sport. So how, how do you train for a race like that um, in the Fort Lauderdale area? Well, I actually have an advantage because I live right near the beach, so I can actually train on the sand, which helps. Um, 
I remember going to a training camp before the, the race that was actually held out in Wyoming in the Tetons. But actually in Wyoming, in that area, there's an area that millennia ago was underwater and they're actually sand dunes out there. So we actually trained on sand dunes, among other things, while I was out there. So for me, I had the advantage actually, again, of being able to, to train on sand and it's hot here, but not desert heat. But, you know, you you train as best you can with what you have to train with. And I, as I recall, I spent some time in a sauna as well, which I did before Badwater because of the dry heat versus the humid heat that's here in South Florida. And so when you're training for these, uh, for something like Marathon de Sable, which is, I, I believe each day can be between 24 and 30-ish miles, what are you, like, what is your peak week look like before that? Like, how many miles are you running and, and how many long days are you doing a week to get your body ready for something like that? Um, my, I train with a coach and, t- and, and her philosophy is not necessarily overwhelmingly high mileage. So it's more back to back days of uh, back to back, like a weekend, for example, where you might do 30 miles one day, 20 the next. Um, but my highest mileage then would be would would be higher than it is now. Might I might have gotten to eighty miles a week, and then not very many of those. So it wasn't all about enormous mileage. But the other things you need to uh, get used to and train for. Remember, you're eating you're eating food that you're not going to be typically eating at home. It's freeze dried for the most part to minimize weight, um, and you may be eating energy bars or something during the course of the day. So you need to. Uh, get used to and adapt to those foods, to taking in electrolytes that you're going to lose, salt and electrolytes you lose through sweat. So anything like a race like that or a race like Badwater does involve more than just the running aspect of it. And in a case like Marathon de Saab, you're carrying a lot of weight on your back. So you need to have a fairly strong core as well. So you're doing cross training to build your, you know, your core strength. It, it, it all, it's all important. So were you there in the kitchen just making your freeze-dried food, practicing for that taste? <laughs> as infrequently as possible. I, know t- I tested a few, but actually it's not bad. It really isn't, especially when and you're it's out there. You know, but, uh, but yeah, no, I gave it a yeah, We tested it a few of them. So we ran a uh, relay recently out here in uh, Oregon, the Windy River Relay, and it was a pretty hot day for us. It was about 92, 93 degrees. Yeah. But what stood out to me, and it was really the first time that I had been on asphalt when it was that hot, and just how much hotter that heat radiating off of the uh, surface was. And I'm curious how you would describe that moment from the Badwater perspective, because I imagine you would just think that that moment in Hood River was absolutely splendid. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, if if you follow the... uh, Follow the weather the, the last few weeks. It's been insanely hot out where you are, but also in Death Valley. In fact, the week mm-hmm. before the race, it came close to breaking the record out there. Uh, right. And the record there is the hottest temperature ever recorded on Earth. So it's insane. But um, yeah, mo- many years it, it goes into the 120s. More often it's in the one teens. And um, yeah, the road gets very hot and all the sand and rocks that surround the road get very hot and they radiate well into the night, almost until the next morning. So you not only have the heat overhead, but you have the heat coming off the road and all that. And depending on where you are and how bad it is, 
I'll sometimes wear actually long pants. It's this white outfit that I have that kind of tends to dissipate the heat a little bit. But that's all part of it. I mean, it's um, the difficulty, again, is not just the air temperature. It's it's all the rest of it. And mm-hmm. um, uh, I don't think there's, uh, I, I don't know how, how it was when you're in your relay, but here in Fort Lauderdale where it can, you know, it goes into the 90s all the time, it gets very hot. But I've never had the experience of that heat coming off the pavement the way the way it is out in Death Valley. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty crazy. There would be plenty of people, uh, certainly a number of our listeners, that would look at what it would take just to get ready for a race, uh, let alone an, an ultra, uh, let alone an ultra where you have to micromanage so many different aspects of it. I mean, the logistics keeps coming back into all of these races that you're talking about. It's not just running. The, the additional level of preparation that comes in order to make sure that you can finish. And I'm curious. Uh, for you, is is that part of the enjoyment and the motivation is that additional um, challenge of the process, not just the run itself? Yes, it is, for sure, um, to try to balance all the elements. I mean, it is, as you're describing, very technical, and, um, and every race is a little different. Sometimes, like in Badwater, or the race that I produce myself as a race director, the Keys 100, you have a support crew that you basically leapfrog during the race. So you meet your crew every couple of miles or whatever the particular distance is. So you can get a fresh bottle of water or a new ice bandana to keep your neck cool or, you know, a new pair of socks or, you know, sit down and take a break if you need to, all that kind of stuff. Other races, you are totally self-supported and you don't have, you don't have that support. And then it's a question of, okay, well, if I can't bring all my own food and gear along, how do I adjust? How do I um, make sure that what is being offered at aid stations, for example, is something that I'm going to be not going to have stomach trouble with, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and you get into a whole lot of other related things like drop bags and other stuff. So every race is a little different. Um, I, I ran a race two years ago. Uh, I ran a fixed time race. And for those of you who are listeners who don't know what a fixed time race is, um, most races are fixed distance, right? A 5K, a half marathon. How fast can you run that distance? Where a fixed time race is 12 hours. How many miles can you run in 12 hours or six hours or 24 hours or in some cases all the way up to six days, right? Mm-hmm. And typically they're run on a loop or a small course that you run over and over again. So two years ago, I ran one called a race for the ages uh, in Tennessee that was on a measured one mile loop. And there I had support crew where we set up my own little aid station. And so every mile I passed by my own little aid station on my own crew. So I was able to bring with me and set up uh, the food and the drinks and all the other stuff that I might need during a race. And my crew was extremely supportive. And every mile there I was and they were supporting me again. So again, every race is, uh, every race is a little different. But yes, um, those aspects of doing ulcers appeal to me a lot. Uh, you know, ultras aren't everybody's cup of tea for sure, <laughs> but, um, you know, it's, uh, it's something that for me is obviously remains appealing and, uh, you know, I'll stay doing this stuff as long as I can remain healthy and, you know, on this side of the grass. And, um, people tell me on occasion that I have inspired their parents to get off the sofa and start walking or riding a bike. And that's an important part of this for me as well, that, uh, yeah. motivate people to try to get more healthy. It's all of a piece. 
So I do want to get into your own race that you're a director of, um, but before we do that, I'd love to to hear a little bit more about your planning from a food and drink perspective for a hundred miles as you're going. Um, you know, and you have your aid stations or your your aid stations set up where your your crew is bringing you food. Do, are you sticking with the same foods the whole time or do those nutritional needs and foods that you want or crave uh, change throughout those hundred miles? It's really a combination. And again, it depends on the race. So my go-to, if I have a crew or an aid station, a personal aid station available is actually uh, ensure, you know, the, the old lady milk oh, yeah. drink. Okay. Because it provides not only carbohydrate, but it provides protein and fat as well. Right. So but I'll typically, my, my typical plan when I have access to it will be to drink a half a bottle of Ensure an hour um, and either a gel or some other type of food product. Uh, most of my races are hot weather races. So I'm not as, uh, I don't eat as much solid food, regular food as I do fluids or gel, something easy to get down and digest. I can, and most people can can digest about 250 calories an hour, maybe up to 300. That's about it. So that's where I shoot for my caloric intake. And when I meet my crew, I'll frequently take a slug of the Gatorade or Coke or something like that. And even though I only carry water, uh, I'm getting some extra calories from those things. So the go-tos are, for me, are, gate, are excuse me, are insurance gels. But you, know, you can't keep that up for 24 hours or 48 hours or whatever. So I'll mix it up with a few other, with other things, depending on my mood, depending on the heat. And it can be a little bit of anything, including some solid food, some real food, which I like to eat if I'm, if I'm able to, to ingest it and digest it. Uh, best answer I can give you. That's what works for me. Now, if I don't have access to a crew, then Ensure doesn't work because you don't want to drink that stuff warm. Mm. And then it's up to whatever's <laughs> going to be offered at the aid stations. And there yeah. I probably eat a little more real food and it depends on what they're offering, but I try to uh, train with whatever I'm going to be expecting out there to try to get used to the idea of eating it. So as you're going into the aid stations where people are providing food, uh, what are what are some of those food items that you get to and you're like, oh, okay, I'm glad they have this? Well, they always have gels, right? So, and for me, um, it's uh, that's an easy answer. That's a That's a hundred calories. Each one has a almost always a hundred calories. So, so that's one of, one of the things I'll eat for sure. And then I'll mix it up with runner junk food, you know, uh, potato chips and cookies and, uh, but fruit as well, banana, take a piece of banana or orange, that kind of stuff, which I know I can again, digest peanut butter sandwich, a piece of cheese or a small turkey sandwich, or it, you know, it's all different. And at night, especially if it's a little cooler, most will offer soup or ramen noodles, something like that. Nothing real sophisticated, but you get in some salt and a few calories and it's a nice change of pace. I typically won't drink coffee because that just goes right through me. But, um, you know, soft drinks, uh, uh, sports drinks, again, like Gatorade or that kind of stuff. And then a a variety of whatever they're offering. And um, that's, again, best answer I can give you because they're all a little different. Yeah, I have a real challenging time with the gels and actually do better with more solid food as as part of my run. So I definitely appreciate that you've got to know your body. Uh, you got to 
do different things to find out what works. Um, you know, I found out pretty early on that Jolly Ranchers, which somebody suggested to me is a great little pick me up on a run, uh, suck horribly. Um, <laughs> I'm not a, a heavy sugar uh, intake uh, on the run and yet also recognize the value of making sure I am getting some form of sugar at some point. You know, you lose so many, so many different things when you're out for a long run. And uh, you want to make sure you're, you don't forget that it's not just the electrolytes and the salt, but it's the sugar and the carbohydrates and the fat and the additional stuff that can go a long way to changing that mental attitude at mile 18 or 60 or 90 uh, and keep you going. Yeah, no question about it. And what you said is absolutely true that there are many people that wouldn't eat a gel if their life depended on it. They just can't stomach them at the taste and the consistency and everything else. So you're right. It, it's what works for you. And that's, again, the importance of training with what it is you're going to be having, you know, eating or drinking out there. If you do a race like a relay, you have the benefit of being able to get a break between your legs so you can you can eat real food and have time to digest. It. So that's a kind of a different program. But but uh, yeah, again, it's 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 training for what it is you're going to be doing on race day. That's the biggie. So for your electrolytes, uh, do you have a favorite uh product that you're doing are you doing the, the salt stick capsules or noon or how are you getting your electrolytes in uh other than you know a gatorade here or or something yeah. like that um i i am i consider gatorade the amount that i'm drinking each hour just totally supplemental i don't even count that so mm. i happen to like to swallow capsules and i've used salt stick many times i've used uh, endurolites i've used different brands excuse me um and depending on the heat we'll will determine how many of those I take an hour. So, but that is the primary way that, that I get my electrolytes and salt. I, I typically carry water and not noon or tailwind or some of the other brands that are very, very good. It's just not what I prefer to do. Now, I didn't complete bad water this year because I didn't, at the end of the day, found out that I didn't really take in enough electrolytes. I had an electrolyte shortage and I was dehydrated. I actually lost six and a half pounds over. Mm. Uh, the first 44 miles, I, I don't weigh much to start off with. Right? So, um, and I had no idea that was happening. So I'm going to re-examine and I'll probably um, uh, start supplementing in future hot races. And if I go back to bad water next year, uh, a product like Drip Drop or another, um, it's almost like Pedialyte. It's a saline solution that's a heavy up saline that I'll use in addition to the capsules that I'll take during the course of the race. And hope that that solves that problem. Um, you know, it's it's weird because the last two times I ran Badwater, I did the same, did the same thing that I usually do, same thing I did this year, and I did not have cramping, and it was still hot. So, on any given day, you never really know what the old Mother Nature is going to throw at you, right? Yeah, you know, you were six years removed as well, right? I mean, it's not just that day, but you're you're not the same person you were even by, you know, micro measurements. <laughs> and, you know, when, well, but I think when you're running something as extreme as the 135, it, it doesn't take much of a deviation for that to throw everything out of whack. Yeah, I suppose that's true. I, I'm of the belief that age really was not a factor, a primary factor in my failure to complete this time. I really don't believe that. Uh, there was one other thing I did that probably wasn't very smart, and that is that uh, a friend of mine is running cross country. David Green, and uh, I went out to meet him in Missouri and ran four days with him um, and did about 115 miles during those four days. 
to get some long mileage in. The problem is it was only nine days between when I came home and when bad water started. And I probably mm. didn't leave enough time for my body to recover. I felt fine. Uh, but in retrospect, that might have also been a factor. But that would have been more of a factor than age per se. I mean, I'm absolutely convinced of that. Yeah, yeah. maybe you felt fine, but your body was like, hey, mate, hold up a minute. <laughs> And yeah. I definitely want to clarify that uh, um, recognizing the six-year difference is not to say you were older. Uh, <laughs> you were just six years different. Uh, and, and again, you know, we, we all need to adapt. And what we think is going to work for us now is not always going to work for us. And that was kind of what I, where I was trying to yeah. go with that. Because uh, I guarantee you at 76, you're going to be running a, a hell of a lot farther than, than I probably will. <laughs> Well, if I may, you're absolutely you're you're absolutely right, and we're you know joking about it. But I can't do at seventy six what I did at seventy or sixty. I mean, it's true. Um, I have to slow down. I can't train as hard. Hard uh, training isn't isn't as much fun as it used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, you just have to adapt for realistically for your age and condition. So so I don't train the same way I did that many years ago. I don't go as fast as I did that many years ago. And there's, there's your balance that you try to achieve. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so when I said, I don't think age per se was the right. cause, I mean, it, it, it contributed in other ways perhaps. Right. But, um, it, it's not like it's 76. I shouldn't be out there cause I'm too old. That's, I guess the point I was trying to make. Yeah, I just no, don't know. You're never too old. Yeah. Yeah. So I have, uh, actually two questions. First one is a little bit more specific. Uh, we have a long, uh, trail race coming up where it's, predicted to be pretty hot and i know that there especially in the west coast there's a lot of there are a lot of runners who are dealing with running long distances in the heat for sometimes the first time because we're not used to this much heat out here right. so i'd love to hear uh, your strategy or formula with the electrolyte capsules you know as the heat comes in what's your metric for how many capsules you're consuming per hour uh, based on the temperature, let's say? For me, it isn't as scientific as it ought to be. It's just kind of what has worked for me in the past. So I keep doing it, which may or may not be very bright. Uh, But typically a capsule will contain about 250 milligrams of sodium ballpark uh, without regard to all the other uh, elements that are involved. So uh, if it's not overly hot, I'll generally take one of those an hour. Um, it starts getting warmer. I'll take two an hour, um, and, and I spread them out that way. Now that doesn't mean I don't occasionally take three, but that's ballpark. That's what I'm looking at, and it's 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 hard to tell you exactly at what temperature or at what sense of heat I, I I change up. But I would tend to urge people to err on the side of a little more salt rather than a little less salt, as as long as they're hydrating properly. So it's safe to say if it's kind of hot, definitely take one an hour. If the temperatures are creeping up, look towards that doing two an hour, possibly more. Depending on the product, because not all of those capsules have the same amount of sodium in them and other elements. So look at the product, look at the the contents, and um, be sure you're not using a product that has, you know, 125 uh, milligrams instead of 250 and only taking one of those. You might need two. You might need four an hour. You know, it, it really depends on the product. So two two fifty an hour is kind of your minimum baseline to to start with. Pretty pretty much, and uh, again, uh, not particularly scientifically based, but that's what in my experiences typically worked. Not this time, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, just so you know, uh, science on this podcast is 
fairly anecdotal. So you are perfectly within the realm of, of giving advice there. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, we like to uh, uh, refer to that as a dad advice. It's uh, both worthless and uh, absolutely the best stuff you'll ever get. Yeah. Exactly. Then go do then go do your research. And then and yeah. then look at something else. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so I, we do want to make sure that we we highlight your races, and in I see that you you do have a relay as part of that, and that's one of uh, our favorites. That's really what got Fundy and I both into running is the uh, Hood to Coast. If you're familiar with with that very relay, much, very much so. Sure. Oh, fantastic! Uh, and I see yours. Uh, I would love to know more about the Keys 100. Sure. Um, by the way, Hood to Coast obviously has been the set the model for all that followed, right? And yeah. A lot of the other state, a lot of the other relay races, ultra relay races follow that same formula. 12 people, two vans, 200 miles, you know, that kind of thing. So um, in the Keys, uh, we run the entire, virtually the entire length of the Keys from Key Largo to Key West. And basically you're island hopping with water on both sides. And if you've ever been to the Keys, you know how pretty spectacular that is. So it's a road race, but um, about 80% of it, you're not actually on the road itself. You're on uh, pedestrian bridges, which parallel the road bridges. You're on the mm. uh, bike paths and, and service roads with about 20% of it on the road itself uh, facing traffic, including Seven Mile Bridge, which is, as the name suggests, seven miles long. Uh, there you're on the shoulder. We cone the bridge. There's signage and so on. But you're fairly close to traffic, and there, there you go. All right. So the race has a 100-mile individual race. Um, and we typically have about 250 people signed up for that one each year. It has a 100-mile team relay, a 50-mile individual in relay, and a 50-kilometer individual race. All of them end on Higgs Beach and Key West. Now, this relay is 100 miles, not 200 miles, like Hood to Coast. And it's six people on a team, or up to six. You don't have mm -hmm. to have instead of 12. So you're running the same number of miles, but you're doing it uh, without ever leaving, basically leaving the course, which you do in a in a 200 mile race, right? So it's one where you're typically finishing, depending on whether you're an elite or not, in anywhere from 12 to 16 hours or so. The record is actually nine hours and 20 minutes, believe it or not. <laughs> and um, the teams have the same number of hours as the individual runners to finish it, which is 32 hours, but I mean, nobody ever takes that long. So uh, as with Hood to Coast, you have a runner, one runner at a time. The rest of the runners are in a team vehicle, a van, and you're leapfrogging the runner. So um, with specific spots where you can stop, which average about three miles. So the runner starts running. The team drives ahead to the first place where they can meet the runner and exchange runners, maybe three miles. The runner finishes that leg. A new runner climbs out of the van to take over. And the old runner gets back into the van to recover until his or her next turn. Now, one of the things that are a couple of things that are very different in keys is the runners do not have to stay in order. They don't have to run the same number of legs or miles. It's completely up to the team to create a strategy based on their own runners, whether they're rookies or more experienced or faster or slower. And while you don't have to exchange every at every allowable stop, over the years, teams have found if they do that and keep the legs shorter, even though they'll run more legs for the 100 miles, they're much faster. They recover more quickly. So those are some of the things that differentiate the Keys 100 relay from most other relays out there. Teams have found it to be, uh, you know, a lot of fun and uh, uh, to be a, a just a better way to do it. So that's that's how we that's how we organize our team relay. 
I just want to make sure I understand that correctly. As a van, we could stop wherever we wanted and swap runners. It's not well, at designated exchange or where it's safe for. Yeah. Well, no, there's, there's actually a prescribed list of places where you can stop because in the keys are, there are a lot of stretches where it really isn't safe or you don't have room to pull over. Right. So that allowable list is either at private on private property where we've gotten permission to stop or it's in a uh, little park area or a, a large enough pullover area where you can stop. So the team can stop at any of those locations that they choose, mm-hmm. but for an exchange, only those locations, right? So if you want to stop somewhere else and uh, somebody wants to go for a swim, you can do that. But if you're going to exchange runners, it can only be at that list of exchange points. Gotcha. But we don't have to hand off from runner five to runner six at the same spot as everybody else. That no, we might actually choose a different one of those appropriate spots to do that Ab- exchange. Absolutely. And a lot of times, a team will bring uh, uh, somebody along who's a new runner. And you know, if you do, if you divide, if you divide a hundred miles by six, it's like sixteen, seventeen miles a piece. But yeah. you don't have to do that. So a new runner might be able to handle five or six miles during the race, and that's it. And everybody else picks up the slack. And it, so it's your call. The team makes it makes up its own strategy and can change that strategy as conditions dictate along the route, which makes it kind of fun. I really like uh, it's really interesting. Those those shorter distances where you can bang out three miles at a time and uh, really turn on the afterburners and then uh, rest up and do that again, because it it's as you get more and more tired from the number of legs, three miles seems like a much easier uh, chunk to do than five or six miles when when you're really tired, like at the end of the hood to coast. Yeah. And like, even though, again, you're running more legs, we found definitively that team times are much faster doing it that way than running these six, seven mile legs at a time, especially in the well, heat. I mean, that's the other factor. Right? I would just like to point out that you're... Uh record setting team running nine hours uh for 100 miles ran that in the same amount of time that it took our six member team to run 61 miles <laughs> well there's you know, some science happening yeah well those those guys are superhuman and, and guys and a girl superhuman um and uh, they had set the record um a few years before somebody came uh a couple of years later and broke it and they came back the next year and broke it again they just wouldn't have it <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Pretty great. Pretty great elite runners to do that kind of time. So let me get this straight. So there's, uh, there's the option for the hundred mile relay, right? Then there's an option for an individual hundred mile run, correct? Individual 50 mile run and individual 50 K. Yes. And a 50 mile relay, which we actually started this year for the first time. So that race, it's up to three runners on a team doing 50 miles as opposed to up six people doing a hundred. Mm-hmm. And again, they start halfway down the Keys in the city of Marathon, which is the best name ever for a place to start a race, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so they run from Marathon to Key West uh, individually or as a team of three, do, again, doing that same leapfrogging bit that we just talked about for the 100 miles. Well, I like the twist on that a lot. Uh, certainly coming from uh, having run hood to coast six times and, and really appreciating the, the logistics side of managing a relay. And then being able to look at that and say, okay, well, yeah, but we're actually going to run it a little bit differently because of the runners that we have and, and who's out there. And, 
And then uh, uh, unlike your example, our new runner would actually probably run 25 miles, including a seven-mile bridge. <laughs> Punish them. Well, hey, yeah. your call. Yeah. I, by the way, I've run, I haven't run Hood the Coast, friends here have, but I run a number of those, of that exact format, really. And I love them. I mean, they're a blast. There's no question yeah. about it. But the only thing I didn't like was having to be off the course while the other group of six was there. You know what I mean? So, you know, I'm obviously a little prejudiced, but I like the idea of just being able to start the race and keep doing it till you're done. So. Yeah, I have to say we, the, the relay that we did uh, was there were uh, six person team relays and you were always on the course, right? You were always leapfrogging your runner, always going. Yeah. And I did appreciate not having that down five to six hours where your body basically just tightens up and gets into the position of, I don't want to run now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you, you get it. You understand. Yeah. So going back to, to ultra running from, uh, for those listeners out there who have maybe only, only quotes, uh, completed a marathon, um, and still have that concept that ultras are crazy. How do you, how would you recommend someone start uh, getting their head wrapped around and their training wrapped around moving into uh, ultra running? Well, for those who have an interest in doing it, I mean, it's sort of like the first time you ever ran a 5K. You trained a certain way for a 5K. And then you said, you know, maybe I can do a half marathon. And your training was different for a half marathon as it is different for a marathon. And, um, and really, that's, that's all we're talking about here. Your training is different. And the longer you go, the more, the more complicated it gets in the fact that now you really do have to pay attention to, to nutrition and electrolyte replacement more so than even typically in a marathon. So um, I, I, the two, two answers to that question, I think. First, uh, for most people, I'd recommend kicking it up to a 50K, which is really kind of the first recognized ultra distance. It's five miles longer than a marathon. Doesn't sound like a lot. It it is, but it does it does give you a sense of what running longer mileage is all about, and uh, that's that's always a good idea. The other thing is, if you've never run a team relay, um, where there's a where it's part of an ultra, one of the things we find is a lot of our relay runners become very inspired by the ultra runners that typically they're running alongside, mm -hmm. and they they decide, you know what if if this guy can do it, or if this girl can do it, what, maybe I should give it a try too. And so kind of our next generation of runners often comes from people who've run our relay and were exposed to an ultra for the first time by just witnessing it running down overseas highway in the Keys. So that's another way to kind of get a sense of what an ultra is all about, is run a relay. You know, that's a great perspective, and I, I, I hadn't thought about that. I mean, I love the camaraderie that we get at all the exchanges. I love starting to recognize the same teams, the same fans, and you get to know the runners. Right. Uh, but then, you know, narrowing that down to a single runner completing the race on their own, that would be even more cool to, you know, be looking for them coming through that exchange and, and looking for them on the road and making sure that, uh, you know, they're, you know, where are they relative to what we can do as, as a van? I'm sure that there are individuals out there that would complete the hood to coast before we did. Well, and that may that may be the case, but you know, there's also the the middle of the pack folks who frequently are are running almost alongside a team. You're running at about the same pace. That that happens, and even though the runners have their own crew, 
teams will often like adopt a runner out there yeah. <laughs> and offer them, you know, a drink or something to eat or whatever and run alongside them for a while. And that's perfectly fine. And it's very cool. And it's, uh, again, a way to be exposed to how this all works. So fun, fun thing to do. Uh, I was curious, uh, you know, you, you've put out, you know, you, you mentioned the, the bad water double. Are you still looking at uh, going into those higher miles? Are there some additional ultra ultras that you have uh, that have piqued your interest? Uh, those things hurt, you know, uh, they all <laughs> hurt, but those hurt a lot. Well, I don't have an interest in doing a double again, um, but uh, I do have an interest in seeking my revenge next year at Badwater if, um, if I'm able to get in and uh, if I'm able to train and if I'm healthy and all those things. Um, my wife was joking, you know, next year is 2022. She said, you'll be 77 and 22. And that sounds like a pretty good motto. So you got to go back. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. so we'll see. We'll see. But well, uh, if you got your wife on, you're already pushing you and saying, you got to get it done. I, I mean, that's, that's half the battle is getting the people that done uh, you have to live with supporting. Yeah. You. <laughs> uh, she's the best, you know, my, my wife, Suzanne does not like going to my races. She just mm -hmm. doesn't. It's just not her thing at all, but she is the best supporter I've ever had or could ever hope for. Um, I mentioned to you earlier these fixed time races, and uh, some of them are very long. And um, again, it's fixed time, not fixed mileage. Um, but two years ago, I, the race I mentioned to you, where I had my own little aid station called A Race for the Ages, is an interesting one because instead of a specific number of hours, like a 24 hour race, how many miles can you do? This race, the number of hours you had to run was equal to your age, or they called it an age handicap race. Okay. So if you were 50 years old, you had 50 hours to see how many times, you, how many miles you could run. If you were 74, uh, which I was at the time, I had 74 hours. So even though I'm slower than the 50-year-old guy, I had more time out there. Right. And uh, I actually won that race and and. Uh, broke the record. And again, it was one of those days where the, the stars just aligned. So I ran 230 miles. Now, would I ever do that again? Probably not exactly, but um, 24 hour races to see how many miles I can go and maybe ultimately a 48 hour, maybe so. So it, it, you know, it depends on how my body holds up and uh, <clears throat> excuse me, what, what I find appealing. Uh, I don't have a bucket list really other than Badwater. Um, it just, kind of what comes along and sounds like it might be fun to do and interesting to do. I would like to just restate those numbers. You, you ran seven, a, you ran 74 hours when you're 74 years old, just that in, insane. And then uh, you ran 230 miles. Yes. 230 and miles, 230 miles. And so here's, here's an example of, of an kind of an age appropriate thing that I probably would not have done many years before. Realistically, I knew I'd be, running about half and walking about half. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times in these ultras, what happens is a runner goes out you know, pretty fast and just uses it all up way before the finish line. So um, he or she is, is walking the rest of the way, what we call a death march, really <laughs> struggling to finish, right? And that's not atypical at all. Yeah. So I looked at this thing and just like a lot of marathon training programs do a, a run-walk sequence, it's not unusual. I said, okay, if I start running and walking right from the very beginning, but do very, very short sequences, like literally one-minute run, one-minute walk, um, and then I started training that way, what I found was my run segments were actually a little faster because I was recovering very fast. I was only running for a minute. 
-hmm. And I did that for the entire AFTA race and all 230 miles. The last mile, I was still running and walking just like I had been the whole time. Now, my overall pace slowed down a little bit. But that's an age, that's a, that's a strategy that was for me age appropriate that I wouldn't have done many years before. So for anybody that's a little older, that's thinking about doing this stuff, that's the kind of thing you want to sit back and think about that, you know, how realistic can you run the whole distance, whatever it is, are you going to walk some of it? And if you are, how do you break that down so that you're, you know, can live to tell tell the story and walk to the, you know, to the beer tent when you finished it being I love that you used wisdom to kick everybody's asses on that one. <laughs> and you threw uh, in the beer a, tent. That, that was a fun, the way they do it, by the way, is um, you, the, the, the oldest guy starts first. And the oldest guy in that race was, uh, you know, he was well into his 80s. I think he was 88 or something. And then, you know, whatever it was, 14 hours later, I started, right? So the race ends at a given hour and you mm-hmm. back up to your start time, which meant the 50-year-olds were starting a day after I started. So I had a big, big head start. Yeah. Well, there was this one guy there who was, uh, I think, 54 maybe, who had won the year before. And he was like just passing me. I mean, like I was standing still. But he never had the time to catch me because I kept going. Right. I didn't stop. And so I won the race. He, he ran, I think, 212 miles, which is pretty darn good. Yeah. But he didn't have the time to catch me. So the concept is great. I mean, I love the concept. And um, well, yeah. Thinking about that, basically, there's almost no chance that anybody under the age of 50 could c- come close to winning then. Well, I guess it depends I mean, on be who the, all the runners were, I suppose, you know. But, yeah, um, you know, in theory, they're much faster they could. There's some, there's some really fast 40-year-old, 40-ish ultra runners out there. So it's Yeah, possible. but are they fast for 230 miles? Well, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's a whole different, whole different thing. But, uh, yeah. It's an interesting concept. Now, I you, love it. You had to stop at 74 hours because that was obviously the way the race is designed. But based on that training and the, the run walk, do you feel you could have continued? Uh, theoretically, but I was done. <laughs> you were I done. Was, <laughs> the record was 228. And so oh, when, I hit two, when I hit 229, the race timer, who's a good friend of mine and times all my races that I produce, started saying, wait a minute, you can't stop at 229. You got to round it up to 230. So he and I had a, 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 a joking battle back and forth about the fact that I was done. And he said, no, you're not. And then, <laughs> then all the people gathered around the finish line area started getting on his side and getting on me. So I said, all right, one more. So I did another mile, and that was it. <laughs> so did you actually stop before the 70? Four hours. I'm sorry. Was, say again. That, did you actually stop before the 74 yeah, hours? Yeah, it was. Done? I had to think about a half an hour left, extra half an hour left, or something. It yeah, was you're like, you guys can have the half hour. Yeah. I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> Set the record. Put the mark farther out than the 54 year old's gonna get. Wrap it up. Hand me the beer. I'm done. Go home. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> put your feet up. Oh man, I imagine if I put my feet up after that, I'm not sure I would get out of that position. Ever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So for any guest that mentions uh, beer, one of our favorite questions, because we, being from Portland, we are great beer lovers. What's really? your, what's your favorite post-run beer? Um, probably my favorite post-run beer, if I can get it, is Fat Tire, actually. I like an oh, Amber Ale. That's a great beer, yeah. 
Yeah. And uh, so if I can find an amber or a brown or red ale, that's typically what I prefer. But at that point, it can be a Mick Ultra. It's just you know, <laughs> anything. Anything's <laughs> <it's> good. <laughs> I hear you on that one. Yeah, we have uh, a luxury of riches when it comes to beer choices out here in Portland. Yeah, and, for sure. Uh, uh, even with that, I know that Fat Tires out of Fort Collins, uh, that's that's still one of our favorites. Yeah, yeah. And that's one of the early kind of craft beers, and uh, yeah, I love it. So I had family that lived in Portland for a few years and trained over there at the Nike campus, and uh, oh, nice. so I've been to Portland enough times to know how great the beer scene is out there. You're right. Well, anytime you want to do Hood to Coast, uh, feel free to ping us. Uh, we'll find you a spot, and uh, we will provide all the beer you can drink. <laughs> Well, if you have a slow enough team for that, I would. Uh, oh, we got it. Don't you worry about that. <laughs> and, and a van with a queen bed. So there's a lot of luxury exactly. that we bring into it. <laughs> I love it. That's great. That's racing. Okay. Good. All right. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Technically it is. <laughs> I love it. Well, Bob, we can't thank you enough. Uh, awesome conversation. Uh, can't wait to uh, see more of your races hopefully we can make it out to florida one day i'd love to do that relay uh your relay that sounds like a lot of fun before we leave yeah. uh if we invite all of our guests as they leave to give some words of inspiration and encouragement to all of our listeners listeners out there well i should have prepared for this one uh <laughs> nah off the cuff is best <laughs> well you know for me it's um and i started running very very late and uh and I've kept going, you know, and uh, the key is try your best not to stop. And if you get re-injured, um, start again, but start slowly, you know, take your time. Injury is, uh, is our worst enemy. And um, whatever it is that you do, if it's, uh, you know, walk, uh, you know, let's walk a couple of miles uh, every other day or something. Uh, try to stay active, whatever your thing is. Uh, don't sit down on the couch and don't get up. Um, the best way to stay healthy is to obviously um, eat reasonably, but also exercise reasonably and uh, uh, age appropriately, typically. Um, so that, that's my best advice. Try to try to work some exercise in. And if you decide you want to try a race, go for it. Absolutely. There's no there's no age limit to this stuff. Uh, just uh, do it appropriately and you'll be fine. Well, that's. Fantastic advice uh, from somebody who has put that into action uh, quite splendidly. I look forward as well to seeing you on the uh, finishing list for uh, Badwater next year and setting that uh, oldest completion time. That'd be uh, fantastic. Yeah, thank you, Nicholas. Thank you, Andrew. This has been great. It's been a lot of fun. Great questions, by the way. Thank you. We wish you the best and uh, keep putting in those miles. Thanks very much, guys. Man, if I can grow up and be like him, I'll be a happy camper. You know, what he reminds me of is the uh, importance of the investment that you put in to do these things. I mean, the uh, races that he has under his belt and the wins that he has out there, that is because he is definitely putting in the miles and putting in the time. And that is what is so important. And so humble about uh, what it takes to be a great runner. He just, you know, it's just who he is. It's a cool dude. And I have no desire to do the marathon de Sable because I don't want to die. But that race for the ages sounds like fun because, you know, you got you to gotta work in your naps and your sleeps and you're just running for, uh, I guess, 51 hours for me, 52 for you. Well, we, I think we're, we're in the, uh, the shit spot right now. Because yeah, you know, we're, we don't want to be there. 
we're, we're, we're neither slow nor old enough. <laughs> exactly. We, we gotta, we, we gotta get either a, a, a lot faster or a little bit older. And I'm going to think the older part's going to come before the, uh, a lot faster part. Just, uh, uh just most guessing. likely, just guess like that. Yeah. So we hope you love that interview and man, uh, next week you are going to love it because we have one of our guests from before that set a brand new FKT. That's right. Liz Anjos is going to come back to the podcast and tell us all the amazing things that she's done since the last time we had a chance to talk with her. It's a great opportunity to see really what you can do when you keep getting out there and you keep putting in the miles and you keep being an old crazy runner.